The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, put down the Meter Maid calendar and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 591, Stories from TechEd Australia, recorded live from the Gold Coast Tuesday, August 24th, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Silverlight 4 video training with Billy Hollis on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now, the man who slept on the plane... And he's still strapped to the rear stabilizer, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, and we're in uh, Gold Coast, Australia, at TechEd, Australia. Hey, we're back in a fishbowl. Yeah, we have a nice little fishbowl here with no roof. So, sorry about the sound. I hope it sounds good. Yeah, it sounds like a conference hall, but it's early in the morning. Well, it's not too early in the morning. First sessions are on. It's pretty quiet here, actually. And we're here in the fishbowl with Lewis Benj. Hi, Lewis. Hi. So uh, tell us about yourself. Um, so I am a British person living in Australia. I've been here two years. Um, and Are most Australians British people? <laughs> <laughs> it seems that way, yeah. Every time I meet someone over here, they're, they're from my hometown somewhere. Right. Um, but I have a, a, a special niche that I actually work in over here. I actually am a Microsoft Commerce Server MVP, and I am a multi-channel retail consultant. Commerce server. Commerce There's server. a couple of words I haven't heard in the same sentence in quite a while. Yeah. Refresh our memory in terms of what commerce server is. So uh, Microsoft Commerce Server is a product that comes out of developer division within Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And it's a toolkit designed for .NET developers to get up and running really, really quickly with e-commerce solutions. So is it a combination of some SQL scripts and IIS uh, ASP.NET pages and things like that? So it used to be, it used to derive from what was called site server. So it originated from SharePoint, um, right. the same family as SharePoint and BizTalk. Um, but now it's actually a WCF service. So what we're looking at now is a completely um, faceless application. So it's a... Uh, yeah, let me just con consider that for a minute. So we went from a from a SQL and ASP.NET solution to a WCF service. Yes. So is it a self-contained service that has stuff in it right out of the box. You just communicate with it and it works. Yeah. So the idea is, is that Commerce Server provides you with the tools for baskets, for orders, transactional credit cards, managing inventory, catalogs, user profiles. Um, you have a single service 
that you can then just get up and running with and you can actually connect multiple retail channels through that service. So the idea is no longer it's just about the web, it's about mobile, iPhone, um, points of sale. Anywhere that you can call to WCF, you yep. can make this work. So and and because it's WCF as well, it can be partially connected or fully connected. So it could even go offline. So you're looking at things like surface devices and rich client devices as well. Wow, I'm I'm impressed. Really, I mean that's that's the obvious direction. You know, they think about it for commerce server to go in. But to tell you the truth, um, you know, I haven't heard anybody talk about commerce server in quite a long time. Where has it been hiding? So commerce server's always been there. It's been a product like BizTalk where. It's a very, very niche product. You would only really come across it if you have a specific need to actually build an e-commerce store. Right. Um, so it's been there. We're on currently version 2009, which was released last year. And there's a 2009 R2 CTP currently floating around the internet. Um, you'll hear a lot of rumors as well as around commerce service no longer a Microsoft product, which technically isn't true. Um, in 2007, Microsoft entered a strategic relationship with a partner organization called Cactus Commerce. And what that was is the, the strategy was to try and build more industry insight into the development of the e-commerce and retail solutions. So they introduced Cactus to help with the business analysis and the planning and the development of the product. So now Cactus and Microsoft jointly developed the product. Wow. But it's actually released as a Microsoft SKU. It's still supported by Microsoft. And there's still a Microsoft team at Redmond that actually build the product. What does it cost? Um, it, it varies. So it's just, you get the standard and the enterprise SKUs. Um, standard SKU... Off the top of my head, it's around seven, eight thousand US dollars um, per pro, uh, per processor, and the enterprise SKU I believe is around thirty thousand. But the price lists vary per country. But it's, I mean, it's important to recognize this is a product that Microsoft sells. This is not just a library out there you can download. No, it's a it's a it's a server product, um, and it requires SQL Server, it requires Windows Server to run. Does it is it uh, available for MSDN? Yeah, it's um, available on MSDN. So um, with Commerce Server 2007, you used to be able to get the free developers edition that you could download and run. Um, that's actually now moved away. So if you want to actually develop on it, you need an MSDN subscription, and you're entitled to use the enterprise um, edition to develop upon. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to actually demo it as a partner or as a client, you actually can download a full VPC with it up and running. And it has um, SharePoint plugins as well. So the VPC has SharePoint installed and China sample site built on top of SharePoint. So, you, yeah, you can build an e-commerce site on top of SharePoint if you want to. Yes. Although there's a group of folks out there who say you know, like, publicly facing SharePoint is a mistake. Like they're there are different opinions on that as well. Yeah. But the fact is you could build from scratch in ASP.NET as the, well. The, 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 there is different opinions. Um, when Commerce Server 2009 was released, it was, was aligned with SharePoint 2007. Um, so it's, the sample site's all built in SharePoint. And the idea is, is if you're a small business, you're an SME that wants to get up and running, you can go and deploy WSS or MOS, so the free version of SharePoint or the expensive version of SharePoint, buy a Commerce Server and deploy the site out the box, skin it up, and it will work. It's a fully functional e-commerce site. Okay, so I'm a developer, I'm a .NET developer, and my boss comes to me and says, get Commerce Server up and we're working, here it is. What, what's my experience like? So um, if you're a, a SharePoint .NET developer... Um, Let's little, say I'm not. So if you're not, um, then you have libraries you can use. So you have this, this WCF library, which is actually called Multi-Channel Commerce Foundation. It's a specific API designed for Commerce Server based around... Um, WCF so it's an in-process WCF service and the entities framework is based around entities alright so it's it's a service that I call with WCF uh, with the or is it an API that uses WCF to call so it's an API server? that uses WCF so um, if you're if you're just building a website then you can call all the runtimes um, in process 
So it will load up via the WCF service internally. It has its own service agents to manage all of the communication with Commerce Server. Okay. And there's also an abstraction layer there. So you get things like um, query language out of the box and, and all of that is constructed for you. And you can just write the queries directly against the application. Server. Are we using Link here? Uh, we're not using Link yet. Okay. Does that seem like a logical progression? To you, it does or? seem like a logical progression, and it wouldn't surprise me if it eventually comes. Mm-hmm. We're slowly coming in line with with .NET four. We've seen um, WCF introduced in Commerce Server two thousand and nine. So I'm really, really looking forward to see what comes in the roadmap to, okay. to align us there. All right. So, so I get the APIs and and I can wire it up. Do what? What do I have to do on my end as an ASP.NET developer in order to get this? Where let's say I already have a a SQL Server, and I'm already using ASP.NET uh, membership. Sure. So um, out of the box, you do get a membership provider. Mm-hmm. So all the profiles management can be done via an existing membership system. So you can switch out your membership provider oh, and good. use the out-of-the-box Commerce Server one, which will mean the communication is then done directly into the Commerce Server databases. Well, and well, wait a minute. So if I just swap out the provider, what happens to all of my membership data? So what you will then need to do is extract your membership data from your existing SQL store and then import it into the, the Commerce Service store. Okay. The reason you'd want to do that is because the profiling system within Commerce Service starts to track orders and um, page views against that. Are there any the, tools for doing that out of the box in Commerce Server? Or is there, that just there's not any tools out of the box, migration. but there's, there's various scripts around on Coplex and on various blogs as well that allow you to, that they produce console apps that take a, a data source and then use the API to re-import it. The profile, could, I just, could I just use the SQL Server import export wizard, or you, a, it depends on what you what you're storing. Um, one of the issues with e-commerce is you have the PCI DSS um, regulations that actually mean that certain information has to be obfuscated in some way. So if you've got personal information in your database, you need to obfuscate. You'll need to push that through the Commerce Server API to make sure that it's encrypted in a way that Commerce Server can then pull it back out in the future. I see. Like you, if you pull out a hash or something like that, you want to make sure that hash remains intact. Yeah. You don't want to rehash it, yeah, so to speak. But built into the this new provider is this whole ability to track when they visited the site, what they products they've looked at, what they purchased. That sure. Sort of thing. So the, the way that works is the Commerce Server extends the IES web blocks, so it appends the user ID to each transaction that goes nice. to Commerce Server. So as you're going around viewing a, a website. You're clicking through the products, you're clicking through the search, you know what terms are going into the query string when someone's trying to search, you know what product IDs are going into the query string as right. well. All that information is then pulled in uh, to SQL Server for reporting purposes. So it then comes into this rich marketing of I know what my, my consumers are looking at and I know how to then market, market to that particular person. Have you, but getting back to this migration thing, have you done any migrations from existing systems to a uh, commerce server and have you? Yeah, sure. Um, mm. it, it's pretty much standard. When you go into an organization to implement Commerce Server, mm. normally it's not a new build. Normally they have existing yeah. systems and you need to migrate it across. So what has been your experience? What, what, were the, what were the challenging parts of that? So um, the, the challenges is normally getting the information out of an existing system. That's the biggest challenge <laughs> we normally face. Got to take the DBA out for lunch, in other words. Yeah, so... Um, you would normally expect it to receive an XML file or a CSV or a flat file export somehow. Um, I've never once done it through a live database. I've always asked a DBA or an existing line of business administrator to, to dump the data out. Yeah. And that way I can go through a cleanse process myself and try it a few times. I'm not having to connect against a live process to actually continually do that. Well, and generally, if somebody's been running that thing for a while, there's lots of duplicate data. Like it's pretty grubby data. Yeah. Especially if it's a website that didn't have transactions related sure, to it. Sure. And a lot of people. Uh, I'd be afraid to delete yeah. anything. Uh, that's that's just me talking. And, and a lot of people went when 
when they move as well, they change their unique identifier. So some people go from having a username to using the email address and an identifier. So you have to go through some migration exercise right. of linking up accounts as well. So um, we get into a format. We go through this cleanse exercise. And, and in some ways, I just normally would use SSIS to actually do this import because it provides them tools out of the box to do it. Right, right. Um, but if I have to, to call the APIs, um, I will either use a, an extension to SSIS and call the APIs out of SIS using mm-hmm. a, a .NET script. Or I'll write a simple console app that calls the um, passes a CSV or an XML file and just goes bang, 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 importing into the Commerce Server API. All right, so I got a, all my data migrated and and I have an API. What's the uh, you know? Let's say I've got a let's say I got a website and I'm selling you know books or whatever, and and I've got some existing code. Let's say that I did it right and I use interfaces and I've got everything abstracted away. What's the process of of uh, hooking up to Commerce Server like? So, um, Commerce Server is essentially one method. It's uh, There's a single method to communicate with Commerce Server, which is process request. It's just expecting a request to be given to it. The actual API is completely unified. So, if you want to request a person's profile, or product information, or advert, or marketing report, that's all done with so a single method. Is it a kind of a REST-based idea where you just have a big, long query string that sends everything to it's, it? It's actually... Um, it, there are operation contracts that go into it. So what you do is you build up a contract to say, I want to take this entity, which is a product. I want to know, I have its ID, um, and I want to add that to the request. I also want to target it to this specific user. So you pass the user's locale and their um, regions in, so you're making sure the price is right. Um, you're telling what channel you're operating on, so your website, not a mobile device, because the price points may be different. And you pass that all into this process request operation, and then you get returned a list of entities. So you get an, an I numeral back of entities that you can then do what you like with. So you can then pass that back in. So it's exactly the same as communicating with um, an entities framework provider with similar type of fashion. So you've obviously built a lot of uh, uh, e-commerce servers, maybe with or without commerce server. What um, what kinds of what kinds of issues are are we looking at when when in general? Forget about. Microsoft Commerce Server, but what are the sort of the big problems that people can expect to? So one of the biggest problems I face is a firstly a lack of understanding around the complexity of actually deploying an e-commerce solution. There's a lot of integration points and touch points. There's an experience that the consumer is expecting nowadays that's not always delivered. And there's also a lot of um, security compliance that needs to be confirmed to. So if you, you go into a small business and you start talking about e-commerce, it's quite scary in a way because you can start going, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And have you thought right. about this? And they're, they're not really comprehending it. So the technical challenges are normally the easiest bits of the, of the whole implementation. It's normally the business analysis and the strategy and making sure everything's been thought through before you actually touch Visual Studio. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who want me to tell you about JustMock Telerik's mocking tool. And unlike most mocking tools, JustMock can work with non-virtual methods, sealed classes, and static methods and classes, giving you complete control over your code. And of course, you get that great Telerik quality and support. You can read more and download the tool at Telerik.com slash JustMock. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. Isn't there an argument to be made for not setting up your own e-commerce site, just selling your stuff, say, through eBay or Etsy or things like that? It really depends who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, e-commerce is e-commerce now. It, it's trading online, and there's a lot of services available to right. allow you to transact online. 
And um, small businesses, certainly, I would say eBay, uh, Amazon is certainly a good option as well, mm-hmm. just to, to, to trade online. So um, I, I guess I think if you're in this position, first consider whether you even want to build it. If there's there's because there are services like that that take a lot of that weight off of you. Sure, and and I would really I would take a step back and say consider what what your engagement is with your consumer. Right. Whether you just want to take money off of a consumer, or whether you want to brand brand yeah. and enhance the marketing capability and build BI, and that's truly what commerce um what e-commerce is now it's no longer just a portal where you go and buy stuff it's what microsoft terms it as a connected experience it's a journey for a consumer to engage with a business Mm -hmm. and have that ongoing relationship and know that they can trust that business and come back and build more information and that business starts to build awareness of them as well and tailors the business transaction to them and it becomes more is this kind of point of sale experience that i'm able to browse through your products i'm able to have a you know take a look at those things you remember me and uh, well, we were talking a little bit about a project you're working on around pizza. Yes. Well, all near and dear to hearts. Tell us the story. So um, we're currently working on a pizza site at the moment. I can't disclose the brand because it sure. ties in with a, a, a marketing campaign that's going to happen. All right. Um, however, the, it's a, a journey now to not just sell pizzas anymore. People want to be able to go on, view the menu, view their stores, and have this experience locally as if they were just dealing with a single pizza chain, even right. though it's a national brand. So there's many, many different pizza outlets that are involved yeah. in this. Yeah, and all of these pizza outlets have different price points, and they have different different variations in their menu. So wow. it's quite a complex logic going behind and the scenes. I think as long as you've got an 18-year-old apathetic kid answering the phone, taking your order, sure. the, these these sites are going to flourish because customers just don't want to deal with these people Yeah, and, and, and they want things quickly as well. So the whole pizza journey is very, very different to retail. It's very sure. real time. You're hungry, you want some food, and you want it delivered quickly. So you want to be able to go onto a website or not just a website anymore. We've had conversations with this client around Xbox. Wouldn't it be great to actually play a game and go, like, I want to order my pizza off an Xbox? Um, so we, That's we, crazy talk. So, so we, we've looked at Xbox. We've looked at IPTV. We've looked at um, Windows Phone 7 and iPhone devices. Right. And just having that real-time functionality to be able to go on, find my store, look at the menu, get the price point now, um, transact, but not just transact, and that's it. But have to transact and fully track where that order is going. So as soon as the pizza is starting to be made, as soon as it goes in the oven, it's left the store. It's en route. To so be able to know all the time and be information rich about that order and be able to relay. And and then once I've eaten that pizza, to be able to transact on social network and to say, yeah, I really love that pizza. I like that, that post pizza. on my Facebook. And so when I go back in and have that experience again, you know who I am. You know what pizza I like. You know right. I liked it because it was on Facebook. And every and that that organisation now aware of you and the process should be a lot simpler yeah uh, my my favorite chinese place near my home keeps track via caller id and the fact that i can just call up and say hey what did i order last time and they rattle off the order say send that again yeah they just the l- reduction in friction to be able to order that's a lot less about taking a credit card transaction than it is about a relationship with a with a, a retailer they, they don't say hi richard <laughs> it, wait, that's the, the funny part here is when you talk about this is the What's the threshold of creepy? <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, for for example, you know, close the pod bay doors, hell. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly. So Expedia, I go and check prices on a couple of flights to a place where they're talking if I would go or not, and I get an email from Expedia a few days later saying, "Hey, can we help you with this trip?" And it's like, well, I'm not actually booking a trip, but it is, you know, that's humming along the edge of creepy. It depends. Like, privacy has always been a big concern. And when you look and step into the realms of people like Google as well and they're harvesting information, yeah. they're not doing it maliciously. They're doing it for the intelligence purposes. 
Um, and retail really, really are on the ball with, with this intelligence. And you can only get the immersive experiences if you trust the retailers to actually do that. Right. And there, there has to be a level of trust. Yeah. Being from the UK, I've seen a lot of privacy breaches of things being left on CDs in the street and credit card information floating around the internet and stuff like that. And that's where it really, really does go wrong. Um, but when you're building up these data warehouses and you're allowing um, analysis to be run and you get in the Amazon experience is a fabulous experience where you go on and they're saying, these are the books you buy, these are the books other people's buy, we think you'd be interested in them. That is really, really good for me because I love to be able to see other people's recommendations. Yeah, and I, I just want to chime in here and get on my soapbox. There's been a lot of press lately in the States about uh, you know, about social networking sites, for example, just mining your data. And in general, just you know, when you go to the supermarket and you give them your, you scan your card, yeah, you get discounts and stuff, but they are tracking you and what you buy and yeah. all of this stuff. And there seems to be, at least in the, you know, the public radio channels that I listen to, a lot of sort of, hey, people, wake up, Big Brother is watching, you know, like a little fear mongering going on. But, you know, if you think about it, I mean, us being on the other side of the equation, when as a consumer and as an American consumer in particular, I don't want to be bothered with advertisements for things that I'm not interested in. Yeah. Like if I'm going to have to subject myself to an advertisement, whether it's at the beginning of a, a movie or something like that, I would really rather them have an idea about the things that I'm interested in, the things that I buy. If I see an advertisement for a new type of guitar or guitar string or microphone, you know, that's stuff that really interests me because I use it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. But having to sit through you know, 30 minutes, a minute, whatever of, you know, hemorrhoid cream, whatever it is, you know, I just don't care about that. Yeah, and this comes into this connected experience piece. One of the proof of concepts I done last year was looking at a video store. One of my first commerce server projects when I came to Australia was, was a, a national video chain. Um, and one of the ideas we were talking about was when was Pan was surfaced, to be able to go in and interact with an in-store kiosk, but also have the digital signage contextual. So when you go in, it's not just Manila, hey, let's look at Time Traveler's Wife, when you guys should really know I'm a horror fan. When I go in right. and you know I'm in that store because I've started interacting with the terminal and I swipe my loyalty card in, that digital signage should then be contextual to me and start sure. targeting office to me. Well, and heck, the- just drop all the shows I've already seen. Yeah. Because I rented them from you. And the point of sale system should be smart enough as well to realize that that's me and you should be targeting office to me. So when mm-hmm. I swipe my card, it should be, hey, you do realize you're now on your fifth buyer. You should be entitled to a discount. Have you, did you want some more teasers with that? We realize you're, you're liking, you're into your lollies and you want your chocolate. All right. So as long as we're on this tirade, let's talk about what not to do as a, as a retailer. Uh, and my first thing that comes to mind is my experience at Radio Shack. Uh, yeah, I, okay, so you don't know about no. Radio Shack. So Radio Shack is this place where, uh, in the 70s anyway, it used to be like the electronic store where you buy parts, boards, uh, you know, diodes, resistors, solder, all that kind of stuff. And they grew into sort of having radio, well, they always had radios, but they grew into sort of having PCs and consumer-oriented yeah. electronics. And But they still sell all that stuff. So I go in there for a little, you know, a watch battery, right? A watch battery. And the guy says, and now he's giving me, he asked me for my, my phone number. No, I don't want to give you my phone number, you know? Oh, well, can we interest you in, you know, a year's supply of batteries? No, I really just want, well, if you take this survey and it's like, dude, <laughs> I want a battery, Yeah, you know? 
Yeah, so um, with the way consumers are now, and especially since the GFC is here, people are information rich and they're very, very price sensitive as well. So you'll find a lot of the use in, in terms of e-commerce portals and um, retail websites as well are used for price researching. So the first thing you don't want to do is the hard sell because people will now won't commit to a hard sell because they don't want to go out and actually research. Yep. So that comes into it. You don't want to do the hard sell. You want to be more intelligent around how you try and sell things. And that comes back into the BIA piece, making sure you contextually advertise into that consumer. The other thing you don't want to do is ask for information when you don't need it. Um, ideally, all you want to do is be able to, lock, to authenticate someone and not even capture username and password and email address if you don't need it. Because with OpenID and the introdu- introduction of federated identity now... There's no reason to actually have to have a login specifically for, say, Radio Shack. You could just go and log in with Twitter or Live ID. And so you don't need to capture that information. You don't need to store it. You don't need to risk compromising that person's identity because of it. Well, that assumes you're using OpenID or anything like that. Is that Do you see a lot of traction in, in I, OpenID? I see OpenID um, as being a really big piece. Um, and you'll see it play but out. Do you where- see it today or if in the future? I'm starting to see it pick up, but more because of social networking integration. People want to be able to interact by, by this, this new medium that's come out of the web 2.0 generation of, of social media. People want to be able to interact with Twitter, with Foursquare, with Facebook. As a retailer, 1-800-Flowers in the US is a really good example of that. And I believe they've now moved their primary operations away from their website and they're now transacting entirely in Facebook. Hmm. Um, wow. which, it, which works really, really well because Facebook, I, it was my birthday last week and I got all of my um, friends to like, remind me and say, congratulations, it's your birthday because Facebook reminded them. Right. So you tie that into a flower service. It works really, really well yeah, because no like, it's, your, it's your friend's birthday. Why not buy some flowers? Well, this is, yeah, you, to, you know, we were talking earlier about should I build an e-commerce site when I can go to Amazon or eBay? This is a different incarnation of I need an e-commerce site, but I don't want the front end. I'm going to front end it through Facebook. Yeah. And this comes back into the services. So when you look at something like Commerce Server, where it's a service-only application, sure. it allows you to do this quite richly because you can just build the Ajax off the back of an existing application right. server. Well, and this idea that because it's just that set of services, you could still have a web front end and a Facebook yep, front end. Yeah, it's fully multi-channel enabled. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm um, going back to the original, what we shouldn't do. So the, the whole idea around federated identity is we shouldn't be capturing the information that we don't need to capture. If we can surrender to using a federated identifier like Live ID or, or Twitter, there's less technical challenges for us, there's less risk, mm-hmm. and there's less information we have to capture. That way someone actually starts to feel safer and more secure that we're not... And you're not asking the same question a million times, yep. which is another thing that's really annoying. Uh, especially, you know, typically when you're calling a company for support or customer service, how many times you have to give whoever your information? Now, didn't I just give you that? You know, don't you have some kind of computer that tracks this call to that number? And how quickly does that information change? Like, I, I yeah. go, through, I change addresses every year when my lease is up and I potentially move. I'm more likely to update my Twitter profile and my Facebook profile of my information because that's where my friends go. Stuff then you I actually am. use. Yeah. Well, yeah, and and I'm thinking in particular about the customer number or your phone. Like you call the phone company and they want your phone number, and then they pass you to somebody else and they ask for your phone number. You pass you to somebody else, they ask for your phone. It's like, geez, guys. Yeah, so one of the other introductions of um, federated identity you'll start to see as well is the movement into mobile devices. One of the issues when you look at Windows Phone 7 and iPhone and Android is that you can't use forms-based authentication anymore. You can't push someone off to a website to log in and come back in again. Right. This is where token-based authentication is really going to come into it. So bring in an open ID provider or the WS Federation Identity Providers into your application that allows you to start moving into different channels that are no longer reliant on um, the web 
as a browser engine as it's now service-based and token-based and you can interact with phones and surface and all them other rich clients a lot easier so lewis given a sort of greenfield opportunity to build a new e-commerce site what are sort of core technologies that you're going to point people at first so firstly it really depends on what your skill set is right so I presume you're a Microsoft developer, otherwise I'd be pushing you away and say go and speak to one of the other contenders. <laughs> um, but I would, I would say if you're building an e-commerce site, really, really look at Commerce Server right. because it, it's a developer engine there to save you time. You're not mm-hmm. having to worry about persistence in terms of session state of shopping baskets, in terms of working out discounts, calculation, marketing, building inventories and pieces like that. It's all out of the box and ready to go. So, And it, it's low cost in comparison to a lot of other application servers out there as well. So you can get up and running very, very fast. But on the other side of this is that, you know, should I be looking at OpenID versus Twitter versus, I mean, how? what is the, the right front end choice, the right identification so choice? So again, that, that really depends on your business choice. Right. Um, we all agree that forms authentication is not the right way. So, from, so yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I can't see a place for forms authentication anymore. Right. A lot of people are, won't surrender fully to OpenID and they still want some, um, some membership provider of sorts for people that aren't on social networking sites and don't have an OpenID yet. Right. They don't like the idea of someone coming to the site and not having a Twitter ID or a Facebook ID and then having to push them onto Facebook to sign up only to then try and get them back to the site. Yeah, that just, that's increasing friction. That's not a good idea. Yeah, so at the moment, there's not a, a rollout and consistency on OpenID to say that everyone is guaranteed to have that account. Mm-hmm. Um, although I would say seriously consider implementing it because it's a lot easier to actually implement um, and allow people to use it than it is to actually write the membership providers yourself. There's a lot of support out there in terms of OpenID for the .NET world. What about the uh, Windows Live ID? Is there a way that we can authenticate against that now? So Windows Live ID is available as an SDK. It's also now starting to align to OpenID as well. So what does that mean for us as a .NET developer? So can, you- I, can I allow my users to log in as, uh, as Windows uh, Live? With sure. Um, you can get to go to, I believe it's developer.live.com and there's various live services you can integrate with. So Windows Live ID is one of them and it allows you to use the Windows Live ID as a federated identity in its own right. It also starts talking about how Windows Live ID is now moving to OpenID and just use it as a generic OpenID provider as well. And does that cost anything to me as the merchant? Um, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure. At one point, there was a price point to Windows Live ID. I believe it may have disappeared, but I can't be certain on that. Mm, interesting. Because, you know, the, there's a real benefit to that, and that is, um, when, especially if you're selling anything digital, that, uh, you know, you want to reduce the amount of piracy that is possible. Yeah. And uh, for that matter, you, you, it's very easy for you to allow somebody to download something only if they're authenticated. But the problem becomes that if you just ask them for a user ID and password, they could just make one up and they could share it then with other people. Yeah. But I think people are much less likely to share their Windows Live ID, their Amazon.com credentials, whatever, because that would allow my, you know, if I gave that to my friend, that would allow my friend to go in and buy stuff on my dime and ship it to themselves. Sure, and I agree. If you, Apple is a really, really good, good example of iTunes. Um, you started to see them introduce uh, AOL's ID and various other federated identifiers into iTunes because a lot of people are not uh, unlikely to, to attach their credit card to an account and then share that account information with someone else. Yeah, so it makes a lot of sense. Um, 
I would say even the Windows Live ID would be a very valuable thing for anybody to use. Yeah, and certainly once you've got the Windows Live ID in as well, you open to a whole other world of services that are available to you, like the Windows Live Messenger service and be able to interact with a retail environment via Messenger and various other bits. And because you've already got that authentication up and running, accessing the extra services is, is very low cost and very easy. It's also a, way, a good way for Microsoft, if it's not free, uh, to making it free would actually promote the Windows Live ID as, a, as an authority. Um, yeah, I, I, I believe that Microsoft is very, very active with the federated, federated identity space. Access Control is one of the part of the Windows Azure framework, and Live ID, moving to OpenID, and becoming a non-commercialized entity would be really, really beneficial yeah, for Microsoft. Well, uh, Lewis, is there anything else that you want to mention before we sign off? Um, no, if you need more information about um, Commerce Server, you can find me on the internet. So I'm on uh, lewisbench.net. Um, and how do you spell your last name? B-E-N-G-E. Good. And it's L-E-W-I-S. Oh, good. Um, or you can hit microsoft.com slash commerce server. And you're one of how many Commerce Server MVPs? Three. Three left in the world. Uh, yes. But it actually sounds like it's it, yeah, it's almost misnamed now. It's, it's not three left in the world. <laughs> it's the starting in three. That's how. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Lewis. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a great product, and I'm certainly going to recommend people take a look at it. So uh, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening out there from TechEd Australia and Gold Coast. We'll see you next time on Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. .net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.